He is risen. He is risen I knew you were waiting for that. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you uh, this morning and rejoice in what we get to celebrate today. We get to celebrate and remember and remind ourselves of and study and preach and proclaim and believe the resurrection of Christ this morning. And so we rejoice to be able to come to you. We rejoice that we get to uh, celebrate a risen Lord. We give you glory today, and we give you glory specifically for having raised Jesus from the dead. And we will celebrate that today, and we will enjoy that today, and we will give you glory for it. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts, that we would engage in this exact topic, that we would look at what you have for us, that we would look to you and seek you and be responsive to what you say to us and be obedient to it. We want to glorify you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 12. And while you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, I want to read a little something to you that will help this morning. A young man walked into a jewelry store to shop for an engagement ring. Standing nervously at the counter, he peered through the glass top at a tray of beautiful gems. The salesman brought out some of the finer diamonds and held each precious jewel up to the light. The diamonds were quality stones, but the young man wasn't really impressed. None of them caught his eye. Realizing he needed a new approach, the salesman pulled a black velvet pad out of the drawer and placed it on the counter. Using his tweezers, he delicately picked up one of his choicest stones and laid it on the black backdrop. As he did so, all the light in the room seemed to pour through the stone, causing it to shine as it had never shone before. The man was dazzled. He had seen this very diamond moments earlier, but not like this. All the beauty of this precious stone was now dramatically enhanced and clearly showcased for him to behold. Noting his approval to the salesman, the man said that this was the one that he wanted. What changed the man's view of the diamond? Why did the costly gem, which only moments before had appeared so unimpressive, now sparkle like the stars on a moonless night? In the jewelry business, the dark background makes all the difference. When placed on a glass counter, the black velvet causes the light overhead to radiate brilliantly through the stone, revealing its true beauty and causing it to sparkle and shine more brightly. Remove the backdrop and it's difficult to see the diamond's splendor. It's the darkness that causes the stone to burst forth with dazzling light. I asked someone last week what they thought of the sermon on Exodus chapter 11, and they responded, it was deep. I said, deep, do you mean heavy? And they said, yeah, that's it, heavy. It was heavy. Last week we were talking uh, in Exodus chapter 11, and we were talking about the, the, the promised plague of the death of the firstborn. And that was dark, and it was heavy, and that's a tough passage, and it provides backdrop for what we have going today, for what we're talking about today. We get to talk about the Passover, which is Exodus chapter 12, and we get to see how that plays through the course of the history of the Jews up until the time of Christ, and we're going to get to see how it plays out in uh, in the Gospels and in the life of Christ, and then we're going to see how the resurrection fits into all of that. And so we're going to cover 
1,500 or so years of history today. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and so um, you have your Bible open to Exodus chapter 12, and I'm not going to read all of 12 into 13, 16, so you can be thankful for that. But we are going to hit some key points, right? Before we get to that, I want to flash back in our minds, right? We've been talking about uh, working our way through the book of Exodus. We've talked about the nine plagues that came before and uh, that's this contest that's going on between uh, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the Lord, and Pharaoh, who's the king of the Egyptians. And there's this contest been going on, and there, there's been this wrestling match, and Moses has kind of been a mouthpiece in the middle of this. And so the result of this is you have these nine plagues that have gone on, and they've been things like gnats and flies and boils and death of livestock and all kinds of stuff that's gone on leading up to the tenth plague which is the terrible plague. It's the, it's the promised death of the firstborn in each household. And so last week we talked about that. And last week was not the actual accomplishing of that plague. Last week was just the promise that it's coming. And so with that background, let's enter into our, our text today. So picking up in uh, Exodus chapter 12... We're going to start with verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And look down at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep, sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So each household was to choose for themselves a lamb. And there were certain specifications. It had to be without blemish. It had to be a male. It had to be one year old. And you choose this lamb. You pick it up on the 10th of the month. And you keep it in your house until the 14th of the month. And on the 14th, everybody at the same time kills their lamb at twilight. Down to verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Why roasted? Well, because it's faster. It's not that it cooks faster. You could probably boil the meat faster. But if you're packed up to leave and the Israelites were just about to exit out of Egypt... Right, They were about to leave, and so everything was supposed to be packed up and ready to go. You don't want to keep out your largest cooking pot to carry with you right? after you've just cooked. So the fastest way to do this whole thing would be not even to clean him, just roast him. And you're going to eat him that way. right? And so their haste is what's in mind. They're about to leave. They're about to pack everything up and be gone and leave Egypt. They've been looking forward to leaving, and now uh, they're going to get to. And so even the way they eat this Passover lamb is going to be pointing towards the haste with which they're to do this. Look down at verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They're watching. They're waiting. They're ready to run, ready to leave. The Passover is about to happen. Look at verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So on the heels of all of the previous plagues, 
God says, I'm finally going to execute a judgment that will be once and for all on all of the gods of Egypt and uh, on Pharaoh himself. And so this is a powerful thing that's going on. It's a, it's a, a big deal. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so they, when they killed the lamb, they would take some of the blood and they would put it over the doorpost of the house. And that was going to be a sign. Because the Lord was going to go through. He was going to send his destroyer house to house to house to house throughout Egypt, taking the life of the firstborn in each home, unless he saw the blood on the doorpost. And so you, you, you kill this lamb, you apply the blood, and, and there's a picture here that we don't really get unless you kind of read it uh, through a few times, that the Lord is the one who's doing the taking of life, but... It says here that he's sending a destroyer to do that work. And the passing over aspect is not him omitting your house, as in he's going to take a life here and then take a life here and then skip this house, omit this house, pass over that house because there's the blood there and then he's going to continue. The idea is the destroyer is traveling along, taking life. And when God sees the blood, he's going to stand there and guard that house. And the destroyer will pass on and move to the next one. And so there's a very strong sense of God protecting his people in doing this. You don't really get that in the, uh, just reading it in passing. Look down at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast Right, and so this is something that they were supposed to do to remind themselves. They were they were to do this year after year, except without the application of blood on the door. There's no mention of that, but they're still supposed to take this lamb on the tenth day of the month. Same qualifications for the lamb. They were supposed to dress up and do this thing. They were supposed to remind themselves, reenact what was going on here in Exodus chapter 12, and and uh, and what's going to follow on that that's that's the passover act itself and then he says there's going to be a period of 7 days after that it's called the feast of the unleavened bread right and so they would remove all the leaven from their homes and they would only eat unleavened bread right if you're traveling and you're going to be walking for days or longer are you going to want to take the time to let your bread rise your dough rise before you cook it you're not so there's even a, a picture of haste involved in this. Remove all the leaven. You're going to eat it a different way, not the way you normally would where you let the bread rise and, and all that kind of stuff. This is going to be something that's done very quickly, right? And there's other application that New Testament writers and other Old Testament writers will make on that, but that's kind of the idea there. Remove the leaven. Everything is to be done quickly. So there's a week of celebration after the Passover event that's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were supposed to do that every year. Look down at verse 29, chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So the promised event, the fearful event, has happened. The final plague has been executed upon the people. Keep reading in verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, 
Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds as you've said, and be gone. And bless me also. So the event has finally happened, and we can see here that it struck right into Pharaoh's own home. And it woke Pharaoh up. He's finally willing to let them go. He, he calls them to him. He says, leave. Go ahead and take all your stuff just like you wanted to and, and leave. You, you, your family, everybody, just like you wanted to. Go ahead and go and bless me also. Pharaoh's beginning to, to get a picture. He's beginning to understand who the Lord really is. And he's beginning to understand who he's really been doing battle with this whole time. Look at verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls being bound up in the, in the cloaks on their shoulders. People of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had, uh, they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them, uh, they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And so they, they've been given permission. They've actually been given instruction to leave the land. Go ahead and go take everything you've got. And they are even provided along their way by this portable wealth that they acquired from the Egyptians. God gave them favor and they asked their Egyptian neighbors for gold and for silver and for clothing. And the Egyptians said, okay, and they gave it. And so uh, they, it concludes here, thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they had been in captivity working as slaves for 400 years. What was the tab on that, do you think? What kind, of, what kind of wages were they due? They've been working as slaves. And now they're about to go into the land. All right? Before they go into the land, they're going to, they don't know this. They're going to be 40 years in the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, they're going to build the tabernacle. They're going to build it out of gold and silver. Where did they get the gold and silver? It was supplied by the Egyptians. It paid their way. Right? It made up for lost uh, lost wages for all of those centuries of, in slavery, and it prepared the way for uh, God to uh, instruct them how to build the tabernacle so they would even be able to use uh, gold and silver for that. Look down at verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, which is what the Lord had said to Abram way back in Genesis chapter 15. There he said 400 years, but I'm good with rounding from 400 to 430. Uh, this is what had been prophesied. Your people will be in captivity in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. And it's come to pass. Now look down into, verse, into chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. I know we're, we're moving fast. There's a lot of repetition in here. I'm, I'm just pulling out the bones for you, okay? So you can see what, what is essential here. Look at verse 11 in chapter 13. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and he shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Right? And, and, uh, and he goes on talking about the donkey and whatnot. So... Because of this, they, they develop a very strong sense that the firstborn belongs to God. The firstborn belongs to God. And so when there's a firstborn uh, male animal, that, that male animal is sacrificed to the Lord. Or like in the case of something very valuable like a donkey, you could redeem it by sacrificing something else. 
and letting the Lord have something else, and you are able to keep this, so you're able to redeem that. And even your firstborn sons are dedicated to the Lord. You're to redeem them, so you make an offering so that you can keep your son, but your son is dedicated to the Lord, but you make an offering so that you redeem him. So there's a very strong message that comes from this, that the firstborn belongs to God. The firstborn belongs to God. And so that's a, that's a strong message we get out of this. And this is supposed to be something that they are to do uh, perpetually, right? Anytime they, they had births in their family or births in, you know, amongst their animals, this is how they would look at this and they would deal, deal with this. So that was a, a commemoration that was going forward. Look at verses 14 through 16. And when in time to come your son asks you, why do we do this? Or what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Right, and so it's a, it's a commemoration. For when Pharaoh suddenly refused, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the animals, or all the males, that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt. And so even this, this idea of the firstborn, firstborn being set apart for God was intended to be a teaching moment, a way to teach their children generation after generation after generation about the Lord's deliverance, right? And so why, why do we do this? Why do we have this weird firstborn rule, Dad? Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, because there was a time when we were in Egypt and we were captives there for 400 years and Pharaoh wouldn't let us go and God delivered us by a strong hand. And let me tell you about that last plague because it was the worst. It was a teaching opportunity for, the, for uh, each family to teach their children. So they were to, they were to remember that, that rule of the firstborn. Well, uh, skip back into chapter 12 and look at uh, verses 25. And we're going to read through 27. There's another commemoration. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then look down at verse, verse 42, same chapter. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And that's the story of the Passover. That's, that's, the, that's the whole thing, right? There's some repetition. There were some other details in there. But that's what happened. That's how the people are able to come out of the land, right? They pack up their stuff just like God said. They, they take their dough before they'd added leaven to it, throw it in a, you know, in a bag on their shoulder, and they take off, right, along with the gold and the silver that they had acquired from their Egyptian neighbors. And they're able to leave, not with the permission, but with the actual instruction, the full agreement of, uh, of Pharaoh. But what's interesting is they don't sneak out the back door. They walk right out the front. Right out the front. Everything that, that Pharaoh said they would never do, they did. Leave just, just as you asked, he said. The, the way you asked, the way you kept bug, bugging me about it, do that. They walked right out the front door with the full blessing of Pharaoh and having completely, the Lord having completely conquered Egypt. They walked right out the front door. And that, that event, that, that uh, Passover, you'll see remembered throughout the course of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, right? And so um, what I want to do is, you're finally to point one in your outline, by the way. <laughs> That's pretty good. 
Passover and Exodus, right? So I want to I want to pull out what are some central themes that we're going to see repeated throughout the Bible from this Passover event. We've we've covered all the history. Okay, that's all the history there. Now I want to look at what some of these themes are. First over, judgment on the firstborn. That's the first element I want I want us to hold on to from this Passover event, judgment on the firstborn. You see, Israel is God's firstborn son. If you remember, for those of, those of us who've been here for our trek through Exodus, back in chapter 4, at the very start of this whole thing, there was a, uh, the, the Lord sent a communication to Pharaoh, and he said, look, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go, or else I'm going to kill your firstborn son. That's all the way back in chapter 4. And so this contest that's been going on between Pharaoh and God himself has centered around this idea of the firstborn. The firstborn is at, is at, uh, at stake here. That's what's going to happen, right? And so it shouldn't really surprise us when we get all the way to the 10th plague that it involves the death of the firstborn. Moses had been, had been saying to Pharaoh all the way through, let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go or else this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And, and, and we saw how that all played out. It's finally going to culminate in the end with exactly what God started it with. Israel's my firstborn son. Let him go or else I'm going to come and I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And we see in our story here, reflecting on the Passover event itself, what does Pharaoh do when his firstborn son dies? He calls them up and says, okay, you can go. Right? So he sends them out. And so it comes full circle. And so we see judgment that's happening. It's judgment that's on Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the leader. He's the, he's the head of all of the people. And the judgment is, is on him. And his people end up paying the price. Judgment's on him, though. And it gets executed on the firstborn. That's the first thing. Judgment on the firstborn. The second thing I want us to remember about the Passover event itself is the lamb slain. There will be a lamb slain. How central that is to this idea of the Passover. That they, on the 10th of the month, would go and choose this lamb. He was a one-year-old male without spot. You choose the lamb. You bring it into your home. You keep it from the 10th to the 14th. Why did you keep it a few days? I don't know. That People have different ideas, but, you know, I don't know. But you would certainly get attached to it, you know, have, having this cute little lamb in your house. Um, I don't know exactly why, but you choose him, you keep him for four days. At the end of the four days, you kill him, right? And this lamb is kind of redeeming your firstborn. Because if you didn't take this lamb, and if you didn't kill this lamb, then the Lord would not pass over your house, and you would end up paying the price, your firstborn would pay the price. And so you have this, this idea of choosing and killing him, but there's more than that. There's, there's this idea in the context, uh, uh, the way they cooked him and the way they ate him. They were supposed to roast him, not even clean him. It's kind of weird, right? They just, just put him on a skewer and roast him kind of thing. And, the, and then you were supposed to eat all of him, right? The, the edible parts, right? But you were not to break the bones, and you weren't supposed to have, you know, some cuts that got left over for the morning. Eat it all. And if you can't eat it all, you need to burn what's left. Right? It's got to be entirely and completely consumed. And then you burn uh, anything that might be left 
And so you have this idea that the, the people were about to leave the land. They were about to flee. And in doing so, they didn't want to be carry, you know, carrying leftovers with them in a, in a lunch bag, right? Eat what you've got and then burn it and then leave, right? So they were, they were supposed to be on the move. And so uh, he, the lamb is to be cooked and he's to be eaten, completely consumed, right? So we have the judgment on the firstborn. We have the lamb that was slain. We also have the blood shed. This is another central part of this idea of the Passover is the shedding of the blood. And not just the shedding, because you, you, you kill the Passover lamb and then you take the blood and you mark it on your door over your house as a sign to the Lord to pass over your place so that the Lord would actually protect you from this judgment that's going on. And so you have the blood that was... It was shed by the lamb and it was applied to the door, smeared on the door. It was an indicator to God uh, to protect you, right? So that the vindicator would pass over and instead the Lord would stand there and protect you. Blood had to be shed and blood had to be applied in order for it to be effective. So those are the central elements of the Passover itself, the, the historic Passover event, right? Well, now I want to I look forward, start moving forward to uh, point number two here, which is Passover in Christ, right? What's going on with Christ and the Passover? If you've read through the Passion narrative, and if you haven't done that this week, I recommend it. It doesn't take all that long. Um, but if you read through it, you will see the idea of the Passover going on again and again, being discussed. It's, it's like the backdrop of the whole thing that's going on during the, in the Passion narrative at the end of the Gospels. Jesus' last week, and particularly his last, uh, his last few hours. And so you see Passover and Christ. Well, let's, let's look at judgment. We talk about judgment on the firstborn. Let's talk about judgment that's on Christ. Judgment that he takes. Of course, uh, probably know the verse, 1 Peter 2, 24. Peter, if you think about the Passion narrative, anything Peter says about the Passion is fascinating to me because, because he was such a colorful figure, always, and right up even during the time of the Passion itself. Strong, bold statements. Jesus, I will never forsake you. I'll, you know, I'll die with you if I have to, if it comes to that, right? And he's the one who draws the sword and cuts off poor Malchus's ear, you know, he, and then the next thing you know, he's swearing and denying Jesus. Peter's a very colorful figure. So anytime he talks about the death of Jesus, it always carries a little, um, a, a, an extra flavor in the weight of what he says. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 2. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And I think of Peter the night before Jesus was crucified and he's watching all the trial. He's watching all the stuff go on and he's denying Jesus. And then for that same Peter to look and say, he himself bore my sin in his body on that tree. But the prophet Isaiah had talked about this hundreds of years earlier. Isaiah 53, this is a familiar passage. I just want to read a, a short excerpt from it about this same idea, about judgment on Christ. Listen to this from Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep 
have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Judgment was executed on Jesus in our place. Well, let's look at the lamb crucified. We talked about the, the lamb that was slain in the, in, the, in the Passover narrative from Exodus 12 and 13. The lamb is crucified. Listen to uh, what goes on in Matthew 26. So this is, this is uh, the, the end of Matthew. It's, it's the part of the Passion narrative. It's what's going on uh, during the Passover. They were celebrating the Passover meal uh, with, with, together with his disciples. And he took the bread in his hand, the, and the, the bread that was associated with the slaying of the lamb, the Passover lamb. And he took that bread in his hand. And we read this. Think about, think about Jesus knew his Old Testament. His disciples knew their Old Testament. They knew the story of Exodus 12 and 13. They knew the story of the Passover. They knew where it came from. They knew what it symbolized. They knew about the unleavened bread, about the slain lamb, all that stuff. They knew all of that. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. The Passover lamb was supposed to be eaten in its entirety. It was supposed to be roasted in haste. It was supposed to be eaten in its entirety. And by the way, if your house was not big enough to eat a whole lamb, you would go get your neighbor and bring them over so that you could finish off the lamb. Right? It was supposed to be eaten in its entirety. It's, it's essential. It's a crucial part of what the Passover idea is. And during Passover, 1,500 or so years later, you have Jesus saying, Take, eat, this is my body. This bread that's associated with the sacrificial lamb is my body. Take and eat. He was associating in their minds and in the minds of all believers after him that he himself would be the Passover lamb. That lamb was simply slain. This lamb would be crucified. So we have the lamb crucified and we have blood shed So he's continuing on in the same Passover meal, continuing on in the same passage in Matthew 26. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's identifying himself in every way that he can with the Passover lamb. The blood that was so important, that had to be applied in order to be effective, was now Jesus saying, This is my blood Drink it. Apply it. Right? Jesus talking in a different context in John chapter 6, a very difficult passage to understand, and it was very difficult for the people who were listening to him to understand. When he said some things in there, a bunch of people turned tail and ran. They didn't want anything to do with him because the teaching was too hard. Right? And so Jesus, talking in the midst of that, speaking figuratively, this is what he says. These are very provocative words. Right? about personally applying his, his sacrifice to our lives. He said, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He's speaking figuratively, and he's talking about his own body being nourishment, the only true and real nourishment for our spirit is his body. He meant that he had, he had given his body for us and his blood shed on our behalf is the only true spiritual nourishment that there is. Without his sacrifice taken into our lives as the only way we can possibly live before God, we will die and be separated from God because we didn't have the true drink and we didn't have the true food. And actually, it's not true that we would be separated from God 
that's, that, that's a slight misunderstanding. We would be separated from every good gift of God. God is still present in hell, present to judge. He's there to judge and to pour out wrath. And so Jesus was saying, I'm offering you food and drink that will give you eternal life. Eat it and drink it, and it's my body. He's trying to convey that idea to us that he himself is the Passover lamb. His blood shed for us must be applied to us in order to have its effect. It's not Our salvation is not finished when he dies on the cross. There's more to be done. He's going to do more to apply that to us. That's the Passover in Jesus. But today is Resurrection Sunday. And we, we lined this up to be able to speak on Passover today because we wanted to talk about the Passover and Resurrection. The Passover and Resurrection because he's not just slain. He's living. And so let's look at uh, three points that relate to those same three points we've been looking through. Judgment satisfied. We know that, by the way, because he was raised. He was raised, and we get to see it. In John's Gospel, he records Jesus' last words, spoken immediately before uh, John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did John say? What did John quote Jesus as saying? It is finished. It is finished. And that's, that's like a technical term that, that they would use for when they were doing business transactions with one another. It is finished means paid in full. You don't owe anything more on it. It's, it's, the bill is taken care of, right? If you were redeeming someone, buying them back, the payment is made complete. The whole payment is done. And that's what Jesus says on the cross right before he bows his head, gives up his spirit. He says, it is finished. It is finished. The full weight of God's judgment and wrath had been poured out on Jesus. Poured on him. Jesus, the Son of God. And as, as Chris talked about this morning at our sunrise service, when the cup was empty, last drop, cup of God's wrath, and Jesus says, it's finished. I've paid it all. It is completely finished. There's nothing left. But there's further proof that the judgment was satisfied. After all, maybe Jesus was mistaken when he said it is finished, right? Okay, I, I don't think so, but people might argue that, right? Well, the writer to the Hebrews declares another very powerful event that attests to Jesus having paid it all and it being satisfied, it being fully paid for. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, After making purification for sins by his death, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sin can't remain in God's presence. And on the cross, our sin was put on Jesus so that he became sin for us. Well, how do we know he paid it all? How do we know God accepted the, 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 the sacrifice? How, how do we know it was actually justified? Because when it was all done and he was raised and ascended back to the Father, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Not only was he allowed into God's presence, he was given the place of greatest, greatest honor and power in all of the world. To sit down at God's right hand. And that's what happened to him. And the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying... It was paid in full. Not only did God receive him back into his presence, but gave him the best seat, the best position. Judgment was satisfied. And we can tell that because he was raised from the dead. Secondly, the lamb was raised so we don't worship a dead Lord. 
Jesus is certainly an historical figure. And Christianity is very much rooted in history. And by the way, that fact is one of the greatest distinctions between Christianity and other religious claims. We're not talking about some smart spiritual ideas. You can look at the history. You can go back and check for yourself. You can compare. You can dig it out. There, there, there's evidence there that you can look at. If I just have what I think is a good idea, it might just be a castle in the sky. If it's only in my brain, how do you know? This isn't only in our brain. This is in history. And so Christianity is an historical faith. It's one of the greatest strengths of Christianity. When you go to compare other religions and you start trying to look at their historical claims, if they make any at all, you'll find they don't stand up. They don't stand up. And maybe you're here this morning and and maybe you're skeptical about the resurrection that it happened at all. You can look into it and see. And you can do the hard work of research and dig into it. And you will see the evidence is there. And it's clear. By the way, the evidence supporting the, the historical accuracy, the truth of the central claims of the, histor- uh, of, of the historic Christian faith, those, those facts are so strongly on our side that it's laughable. We do a disservice to the kingdom, Christians, when we, when we kind of quake because a smart person tries to talk to us about how the Gospels must be wrong and the New Testament's not reliable. Man, we are doing a disservice. It's laughable how strong it is. Don't back down. If you don't know it, you need to learn it. But certainly have courage that the New Testament holds up. It's been under attack for a couple thousand years, and here it is. It's powerful and it's strong. And the, the, the historical aspects that it points to, you can research and you can find out, in as much as we can know any history at all, that it is true. So Christianity is an historical faith, and Jesus was an historical figure, but he's not just an historical figure. He's not just a great man who said wonderful things and did miracles and, and was someone special and important and then died and has a, has a tomb somewhere. He's alive right now. That's another thing that's utterly different from any other religion. The Lord that we serve, not only did He exist in history, He is alive now. He is active now. He's active in His church now. And that's a world of difference from any other philosophy, from any other religion, from any other thing that you think is going to get you through life. We're talking about someone who's true and made incredible claims and followed them up. And God put His stamp of approval when He raised Him from the dead. Man, there's power in that. There, there's security in that. There is joy in that. There's peace in that. There's hope in that. The Lamb was raised, and we don't serve a dead Lord. We don't serve a great idea. We serve a risen Lord. And that's what we get to celebrate today. What a great thing for Resurrection Sunday to be able to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Finally, the final point, eternal life. This is what we receive through His blood. Eternal life. Like the diamond against the background of the black velvet that we talked about in the beginning. The eternal life we receive in Christ jumps out and is made all the more brilliant by the backdrop of the death that we actually deserve. God was rendering judgment on Pharaoh. And that trickled down to the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Well, God has rendered judgment on Adam, our first father. 
and he was a sinner. And we receive judgment because of our connection with Adam. Is that unfair? Oh man, I won't even look at you. I'll look at me. And all the, all the sin that I have happily run into in full agreement with Adam. And I've deserved God's wrath. I deserve it for both reasons. God's wrath, I deserve. And when we keep that in mind, when we keep that as the, as the black backdrop, boy, the eternal life that we receive in Christ looks completely different. Keep that in mind. Keep in mind the horrors of what happens to God's enemies in Exodus chapter 12. And then listen to this. This will sound familiar because it's our memory verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by faith are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. <laughs> that's what we get out of the deal. That's the, that's the gift that He gives. That's the eternal life that He offers. There's such great joy. And so the, the heaviness that we looked at last week and the, the weight uh, of, of, of the death of the firstborn is, a, is a, a dark background that makes the jewel of the eternal life that we have in Christ pop so that we see it and we desire it and we want it. And believers, we serve a risen Lord. Let me quote from Peter again. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially. This is the first takeaway for believers. If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So trust in God. Have faith in God. Have joy in God. He is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. We serve a risen Lord. Not a dead historical figure, but a risen Lord who is living and He's active right now. Continue to trust and continue to hope in God. But maybe there are some here this morning who uh, have not uh, have not named the name of Christ. They don't. They don't. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe maybe you've never heard about this before. Maybe you've heard about it ten thousand times, but but you don't you don't trust in the Lord in that way. Recognize your need for God. Recognize your need for God as the starting place. Probably before this morning, you were already aware that there was some kind of a difficulty, some kind of a distance, a disconnect between you and God. You're probably already aware of that. And you might have even been aware of the fact that it's because of your own heart, because of your own rebellion, because of the things that you want. You don't want to be like God wants you to be. You don't want to be who God wants you to be. Maybe you were aware of that. Maybe you weren't. Those things are true. Recognize the gift that God has given you in the person of His Son. Put yourself in the place of those in Egypt who knew that judgment was coming. Remember I said last week there was no warning. It was a statement of fact of what was to come. There wasn't a warning as in, this is what's going to happen unless you do this thing. We don't see that in the tenth plague and it scares me. 
Think about that. They knew it was coming and they even knew what time it was coming. And you don't. So I urge you today to apply the blood of the sacrificed Passover lamb to your own life so that God will protect you from his coming judgment. By the way, the judgment that you rightly deserve. But he offers to protect you from that judgment and stand in the way through his Passover lamb. Jesus said his body was true spiritual food and his blood true spiritual drink. The only things that can make you alive and acceptable to God is the offering of Jesus himself. And he offers that to you. He wants you to know him in that way. He is giving you warning and he's saying, flee from the wrath to come. And here's how you flee, the person of Christ. So this is Resurrection Sunday. And won't you, won't you look to the risen Lord to save you today? He will gladly do that. He will gladly do that. So it's hard to narrow down what, what, what you talk about on Resurre- Resurrection Sunday. Because there's a lot. And everywhere I looked, I thought, I could talk about that. And I could talk about this other thing. And this incredible thing in life. And what it means for us. Right? It's amazing. There is, there is a ton in there. So read your Bible. Start looking. Start looking up words like risen or resurrection or start looking, start reading through it and you'll see particularly, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, go, or go, go through all the passion narratives. There is so much there that's meant to encourage us Christians that we serve a risen Christ, not an historical figure who's dead in a grave somewhere. Because he is risen. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you and I give you great praise and glory for the work that you've done in my life. Most importantly, for the work that you have done in sending Jesus Christ to be our Passover lamb. We get to be protected from your judgment by you. I, I don't deserve that protection and yet you, you give it. And that protection is offered to anyone who will call upon you. And I pray that anyone here this morning who does not already know you, that they would call upon you, that they would seek you, that they would seek Christ for protection from the wrath from you that they deserve because of their sin. I pray that you would do that miracle of raising them in their, in their uh, spiritual life even this morning. Lord, we give you glory and we praise you and we worship you and and we will do that later with our families as we celebrate and as we do all the things that we do. It's to give you glory and it's to praise you and it's to say thank you for Jesus, our Passover lamb. Revelation 5 says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. So, just before you're dismissed, we're going to have a, um, a couple on each side of the stage up here. If you want to come and pray, if you have a need in your life, if you want to trust Christ, you're going to have opportunity to do that. Uh, but God bless you, and He is risen. He is risen. You're dismissed.